he's working with Campus Crusade. How many remember Campus Crusade? Okay. Because they were here in this community for very a long time. In fact, Bill Bright spoke here at the church. I met Bill um, way back when I was really young. And the ministry, though, was, was begun actually in Hollywood, moved out to San Bernardino, and then influenced all over the world. Well, it's moved from kind of Campus Crusade for Christ to what they call Crew now. It's called Crew. We have one of our missionaries, Mike Milkling, who works for the Jesus Film Project. He, he's with Campus Crusade for Christ as well. And uh, he's, he was part of this fellowship a long time ago. But Jeffrey grew up in our youth group, and he's doing some exciting ministry for uh, Camps Crusade, and I wanted to share those things. So let's start with what college you're serving in. Yeah, right now I'm serving at Ohio University uh, in Athens, Ohio. I would say it's southeast. I'm not expecting you How guys to know How big a college is it? Uh, big of a college, around 25,000 students. Okay. And so you're there representing, what do you do when you're there with yeah. Campus Crusade? So uh, what I'm there, well, I went to Cal State Fullerton, and uh, I was a part of crew as a student there. And uh, it's so great to be on staff. And what I do is we try to win the hearts of the students, the whole entire campus. And uh, 25,000. Yeah, all 25,000 of them. And it's great seeing uh, 500 students already just really on fire for God and bringing in the freshmen. And uh, what we try to do, uh, we try to win their hearts with Jesus, and then we go into discipleship. Luckily, we have a lot of student leaders, staff, too, and uh, we go in there and we, we disciple them. We teach them how to fight their sin. We teach them how to share their faith. Uh, we teach them how to read their Bibles consistently, to be accountable with their brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, how to be a part of a community how to be a part of a community within a church setting, not only within your college ministry. And the hopes are that throughout uh, their college span, they'll reach out to the students in their dorms. They will uh, go on spring break trips where they reach out to people stateside. And our one goal, we want to complete the Great Commission. We want to make disciples of all nations. And uh, every single summer, college students go to the Middle East. They go to Africa. They go to Southeast Asia, and they go there on missions trips for the whole summer. Uh, just last week, everyone uh, took off. My guys that are with me, uh, my buddy Josh, he grew up. His parents were missionaries in China, and I was with him on missions two years ago. Uh, Jacob is from Toledo, Ohio, went on missions with him. And uh, James, he's from Illinois, and they're out here visiting me, which is great. But we all met on missions trips just all the different college students reaching the world. And our goal is when they graduate, whether they go into the workforce or if they decide to do ministry or how they get plugged into leadership in their church, that they're able to replicate what they learned in college. That's really cool. I mean, think about missionaries all over the world, but how important it is to have missionaries in colleges right here in America. Pretty cool, huh? And so Jeremy, uh, uh, Jeffrey's doing that, pardon me, Jeffrey's doing that, and I was excited. Uh, he, him and I have kind of networked together over the last couple of years, and he sends me his monthly newsletter. Um, I really want to introduce him to you. If you don't know him, you should know him and his ministry, and you can also be a part of his ministry through prayer or financial support, and he can give you all the details on that. We've given him a little money from the church. We've supported him a little bit. But uh, he's going to be around. He'll be, actually, you're not going to be around that much because something really special is going to go on in this guy, young man's life here. And when? When's that going to happen? November? Uh, September 3rd, 
I'm getting married. (laughs) Lots of changes in in his life. And so I wanted to introduce him to you. Um, You know, Sunday school and growing up in church and going to college and meeting friends, you know, it all starts, I think, in the local church. And they disciple on the campus to get those students in a place where they're not only community on campus, but serving in their local church body. So this is a great example. Jeffrey's a great example of that. Anything else you want to share uh, tonight? Uh, yeah. One thing that I'd love to, it's, uh, I remember coming to the Red Barn all the time and a uh, youth group would be on Thursday night. Not sure if it still is, uh, but I would always sort of sit in this side exclusively where the rest of the cool guys were. And, uh, <laughs> I remember when I was there, uh, we went into that side room over there, and I was sitting in there with uh, a few guys that are still around, uh, Eddie Almos and uh, Jared Miller. And uh, Chris was talking, and he was sharing uh, how Jesus died for our sins. And that's like the number one thing we hear. It's like, oh, yeah, he loved us. We accept him. Now we're Christian. But I remember just sitting down there, and the way Chris Morrow explained it to me, it just it hit me so hard. Wow, that's why Jesus' death was so valuable. That's why he had to die. And just grace consuming me at that moment and really sort of understanding what that meant for my life. And uh, I know I was really scared to go to college and pursue Christ. Uh, my goal was just to live a college life like I feel a majority of high school students do. But by the time I got there, uh, there was not a path that was more fulfilling than seeking after God mm. when I got there. And that was I, right here at Fullerton. Yeah, at Cal State Fullerton. And uh, I always remembered that moment. It's just like, wow, Jesus died for me. What am I going to do with the rest of my life to make sure that his sacrifice just isn't in vain? What am, like you're saying, what am I going to do for that eternal glory in heaven when I'm up there? And I lay my crown at his feet, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, nothing more fulfilling than just living a life for him. Awesome. And, and Jeffrey's father is uh, part of our fellowship, too. Where's Jeff? There he is right there. Wave his hand. He's, he doesn't want you to know who he is. He did that really <laughs> quick. Anyway, just wanted you to meet Jeffrey, um, and let's pray for him before he goes. He's, he's going to leave when? Uh, June? June 10th. I'm 10th. taking off. So he might be around one more week, but he's, he's going to take off. He's, he's going to go to a, a meeting for, the, for crew, really, mm-hmm. in Colorado, and then he's going to get married. So yeah. we won't see him for a while. I'm I'll, sure. I'll be back for like three weeks, about three weeks, but then I got to go. After you're married? It, or after Colorado. After Colorado. But then okay. I got to go get married in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. All right, well, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get pictures and show the Bible. Let's pray for Jeffrey and his ministry. Father, we're just so thankful for uh, this young man. And he's dedicated his life to you. And Father, you're using him to do that ministry there in in Ohio. Uh, Lord, I just pray for he and all of the leaders, all the leaders there at that university and crew around our nation who are really missions oriented, who are sharing the gospel and who are bringing uh, these young people that, that maybe have gone to church, but, but now they're in a college environment, bringing them out of the college environment and into the Christian community. And so, Lord, I, I get it, and I'm thankful, and I, we just pray tonight for Jeffrey that you would use him for your glory. Lord, prepare him for the one, another big decision in his life, marriage. Bless he and, and his uh, 
bride, Lord, as they look forward to coming together and being one. We just ask your blessing on him and for his ministry. In Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So glad. All right. Well, we're here to study the Bible. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35 as we work our way through. We, Again, if you've not come for a while, we're working our way through Genesis. We've been in Genesis for a year and a half. We're, we're doing verse by verse study through Genesis on Wednesday night. Fantastic, uh, wonderful study. And then we get to Jacob and we're like, oh, brother, another week of Jacob. Boy, what a loser this guy is. And yet he is key. He's key in the family of Israel. And so we're learning about him. We, last week we learned as he came back, finally he's obeyed God. Partially he comes back. He lies to his brother, uh, telling him he'll follow him home to Seir, but he doesn't. He goes a different direction. And uh, all kinds of things are happening as he builds a home and finally kind of throws a, a bone to God in, in the sense of Doing, a, doing an altar at the end of, of establishing his life. He doesn't begin with God. He ends with God. He's just really not following God. His name has been changed. He's already wrestled with God. God's called him God rules or Israel, but he's still a big Jacob. He's a con man. He's a schemer. And that's who he is. That's what he's learned. And he's still that same old man bearing the same name in his partial obedience. And we get to this next chapter, chapter 34. Dirty uh, chapter, um, ugly chapter, filled with the worst sins of the nation of Israel. We looked at that last uh, time. Just really proving that the heart of man is wicked, wicked to the core. And Jacob and his family, his sons, you know, and their plan, and they go and murder all the men of Shechem, um, again, you know, the, his daughter gets raped. It's just a horrible chapter when you look at it. But there's, all, there's some wonderful things that we learned last week about parenting. We learned about what not to do. We learned uh, some real practical things as well. Now we're here in chapter 35, and we come to this uh, section. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read this first section. I'll come back and make application, beginning in verse 1. Then God said to Jacob... Arise and go to Bethel. So he's been broken. He's been partially obedient. Now God comes to him again and speaks to him and, and appears to him. I believe that he's there physically. He tells him to arise and go to Bethel. This is where God told him to go to begin with. And now he's saying, this is where he wants you to be, Jacob. Go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household, and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So there's some change you can see that already in him. Verse 4. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands. That's the family. Remember, they, they had brought some of their foreign gods with them. And the earrings, specifically, which were in their ears. And Jacob, he hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, or Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El 
Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, in this first portion of this beginning of this chapter, we see uh, Jacob's revival. He's, he's now coming to the Lord. He's more obedient than he's ever been in his life. Praise God, you know, for that. And many, many chapters we've seen him in, in all his mistake-driven life here. But now he's, he's having a revival. And it begins with God speaking to him, verse 1. Look at verse 1 again with me. Then Jacob said, or God, pardon me, said to Jacob, Go to Bethel and dwell there. So this is about the third time God has told Jacob to be obedient, and he does it this time, an important point. And this whole incident back at Shechem was a result of Jacob's disobedience or his partial obedience, as you recall. But now he's being obedient. And Jacob's revival begins by obedience, like it does in all of our lives. Being obedient to the word of God, being obedient to the Holy Spirit, being obedient to that call of God. I mean, can you imagine? It's a difficult thing to be obedient to the Lord in in the face of people. I think about Jeffrey at school, you know, 25,000 students, and he's standing for Jesus Christ along with the other crew members, standing for the Lord. I mean, it takes courage to stand for Jesus Christ. And it's important that we learn that Um, He's learning it at a young age. Maybe you've learned it at an older age. But God will put you through a test and you'll have to stand for him. And that's what's happening for Jacob here. He's, He's now obeying the Lord. And God's first command to him is make an altar there. So Jacob's revival, it begins with worship. And why do we spend time worshiping the Lord before church? Because It all begins there with worship. Before the Lord, it's just you and the Lord. Now, we have instruments, and there's words on the screen, and there's lights and those kind of things. But but worship begins this place of revival. It's just you before the Lord singing to him and worshiping him and giving him glory. And worship, of course, takes on more forms than just singing worship. I believe I'm worshiping the Lord as I read the word to you, as I share my gift to you. And as we share our gifts to one another, we're worshiping the Lord. But, but revival begins with worship and genuine worship, directly communicating with God like Jacob here. He's, he's communing one-on-one with the Lord. And aren't you glad that God wants this relationship that's so personal with him? It's just a one-on-one. Whether you're driving or sitting or working, It's a one-on-one relationship with the Lord, and I believe that's what God will come to you and he'll speak to you. And and now if you reject his voice or you reject his word, partial obedience, just like Jacob, chapter 34. Bad things happen. Trials come. Dangerous things happen in the believer's life when we step outside of the word of God into disobedience. So with obedience and worship, this revival happens. John 4, 24, here's a verse... Behind me on the screen, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, but notice in truth. Notice that. We worship a God, and we know who he is personally because the Bible reveals everything we need to know about him. You're not going to find out, you're not going to find God by just looking at stars, although 
in the stars, we see the wonder of God, right? But God has written a book, and you all have it. You have a book. And in that book, God reveals who he is and, and what he's done. And in that book, we know who he is, and we're able to worship him in truth. Not a God that somebody makes up or draws, but a God that we know declared in the pages of Scripture. So important that we worship a God of truth. Jacob had this one-on-one -on -one encounter. We have encounters with the Lord, but they come through the Word of God. And then notice in verse 4, my next point here, Jacob buries all the idols. Remember, we just read that, verse 4. So they gave his family members, they give all their idols, their foreign gods that were in their hands and, and, and on their ears here. Uh, and Jacob took them and he hid them from them. He took them away from the people and he hid them under this, this tree, burying them there in Shechem. Now the source of Jacob's trouble, the source of the murderous, his murderous sons and, and all the calamity that they caused were really because of the presence of these foreign gods. They weren't committed to the Lord. They weren't sold out to, to God. And so they were susceptible with their idols. They were susceptible to this horrible thing. So when you look at the murder and the murderous acts that happened in chapter 34, uh, as a believer, I believe in a personal devil, not a devil that, that, is, that is impersonal, but a very personal devil. And he commands, in Ephesians 6, you see this, this work of, of demons that are all throughout the planet doing their, creating havoc. They're murdering. They're lying. They're, they're the ones that are bringing people under the, the bondage of Satan, not God. And it's because of these idols that these boys... The sons of Jacob did these murderous acts in the city of Shechem. So now they're, they're revealing all these things. They're taking their earrings off. They're, they're giving them to uh, Jacob as he's going through revival. He doesn't want any false gods. He's done with partial obedience. And he wants all these idols. And he takes care of them. He takes them away from the people. And he buries them under that tree. Here's the, the application up to this point. An idol. Don't think just of an idol of gold or, or an image. But an idol can be your job. It can be a hobby. An idol can be your marriage, even your family. When you put those things before the Lord, anything that you put before the Lord becomes an idol. I'm serious about that. You can put so much emphasis on your job. You put everything on your job, and so much so that, that it becomes an idol more important than God. Don't let that happen, because that's what, that's what an idol does. An idol will take and steal your reverence. It'll take and steal your attention from the Lord. And God is a jealous God, as the Scripture says. He wants your all. John, if you'll remember, as we've been studying on Sunday morning, we finished uh, this first epistle, epistle of John, John 1. John ends chapter 5 with little children, keep yourself from what? Remember, idols. Keep yourself from idols. Idolatry was a problem in those days. Idolatry has always been a problem with the people of God. Keep yourself from, from idols. And Paul reminded the early church that they had to give up idols as well in order to serve God. Let me show you really quick this reference, 1 Thessalonians 1. Notice this verse behind me on the screen. How you turned to God from idols. 
the Gentiles, they, they, they served idols. They had idols in their homes and their places of employment. All throughout their land, there were these idols. And Paul's reminding them, remember, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So idols, they've got to be given up in order to receive God's blessing, God's direction in your life. And we, we need to do this. As we read the Bible, we need to see those things that God reveals clearly. Idols were a problem for Jacob and his family. Idols could be a problem for you and me too. So Jacob, he gets rid of everything, and we need to get rid of anything that stands between us and God. And the, the warning is, is clear. Again, when you read chapter 34, you need to be quick before tragedy strikes, you know, before uh, something bad happens. Take care of those idols. So again, God's word to Jacob. And then Jacob's word to his family, I want the idols. Let's get them out of the family. Let's get rid of these things in our home. Put them all away. Verse 2, he says, put them away, foreign gods, all of those things. So this is just like the, the New Testament command. Again, the God of the old is the same. God is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament, Paul reminds us, that we're to take off the old things and put those things away, to follow the Lord completely. It's in Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10. Really quick, let me show you this verse, Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, Paul writes, since you put off, there it is, the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We do the same thing. Jacob had to get rid of the idols. He had to put off the old and put on the new. It's the same thing in the New Testament. We put off the old and put on the new. So Jacob, he's being prepared now. He's being prepared to be a, a better leader of his home, a better leader of his family. And now I think he can actually take his name. Remember, God changed his name from surplanter, con man, schemer, Jacob. He changed it to Israel. Or God rules. See, it used to be Jacob ruled in all those areas. But now it's God. And God wanted him to know that you're wrestling not with, God, with men, but you're wrestling with me. And I'll give you a new name. And I'll take care of your needs. And you just need to trust in my promises. But now he's learning to be fully committed to God here. And he's, he's really changing from a Jacob to an Israel right before our eyes here. Again, verse 4. So they gave... Jacob, all the foreign gods, and then he buried those things. They surrendered everything. Now, there's a lot I could say. Let me just really quickly just say this one point. Parents, uh, parents, be really careful and understand this, that even grandparents, uh, we need to be righteous examples for our children. Really important. Otherwise, they're going to uh, do things that are disobedient to God's word. The best thing that we can do as parents and grandparents is to be close to the Lord, to get rid of our idols, to serve the Lord faithfully. And when we do that, we can be what God wants us to be before our, our children. And so Jacob, he surrenders everything, the idols, and he restores worship. And then notice what happens in verse 5 here. God protects them. They journey from the terror of God uh, that, because the terror of God was on the cities that were around, all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So 
Chapter 34, remember the incident. They killed all the men of Shechem. So the, the surrounding tribes would have been like, hey, we got to get back on these guys. These two guys, Simeon and Levi, killed these men. Maybe they'll kill us too. We got to go take vengeance on them. But God wouldn't allow it. God put a fear on all the people around there to don't touch Jacob and his family. Uh, you were most vulnerable in this period of time when you stepped outside the city walls and went on a journey. He's now going on a journey back to Bethel. And so on his journey to Bethel, he needs protection. God is going to supernaturally uh, protect them. He sends this divine terror into the hearts of the surrounding people so that they will not uh, hurt uh, Jacob and his family. God will always go before you when you trust him. You got to trust him. Get rid of the idols. And trust God, and, and let, God will take care of you. You walk by faith, Christian, brothers and sisters. You, you've got to trust the Lord. You've got to put it in his hands. Nothing, nothing can come against you. In fact, here's a great verse just to remind you, Isaiah 54. This verse here is, is really key. You've heard it before. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. You see, these are the words from God that should help you in any trial. They should help you in any difficulty. You've got to get your eyes off the circumstances. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Throughout the scripture, we're, we're told to trust the Lord. Jacob is now trusting the Lord. Look at verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz. He, that means he, he came safely there. He, he's not, he doesn't have to worry about it. He comes to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with them, verse 7, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So God brought them safely to Bethel, where God originally told them to go. He disobeyed partially. Uh, uh, his partial obedience got him into a lot of trouble. Finally, he's obeyed, and God's brought him safely there uh, to Bethel. Again, God has a purpose. God has a plan. We need to listen. We've got his word. We've got prayer. We've got the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us, and we just need to trust in the Lord. This, by the way, is the fifth altar that's mentioned as we go through the book of, of Genesis by the patriarchs. Each one builds a, uh, an altar. Abraham built altars in Bethel. Isaac built one in Beersheba, which is really close to Bethel. And now Jacob builds this one. And he calls it El Bethel. In other words, God. El is God in the Hebrew. God, the uh, God of God's house. And so he, he's going to God's house, Bethel, but he calls it, this is God. God is in the house, meaning that he had an experience with God. He saw God. He, God appeared to him. We believe this is a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate uh, visit by Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He appears and he talks to Jacob. So Jacob has this great encounter and, and he calls the place El Bethel. Now, verse 8. It includes an interesting mention here of this woman, Deborah. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. 
died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. Lots, lots of things getting buried under that tree, if you'll notice. So the name it was, um, so the name it was called Alon Bakuth. Now Deborah had come originally with Rebecca from Haran when she married Isaac. So this was like her best friend. She became a special family person. Maybe she served in the family. She just became part of the family. So much so that she's mentioned here uh, in the scripture that name Alon Bakuth means oak of weeping. So this, this family was broken over the death of Deborah who served this family. Now, Verse 9, God repeats his covenant to Jacob. Notice verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. So he's got this one-on-one relationship with, with God, Jacob does. It says, when he came from Haran or Padan Haram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, your name shall not be Jacob. So he says, I'm going to remind you of your name again. It's con man, it's schemer. But it's not going to be that anymore. It's going to be God rules. That's going to be your name. And so he, he reinforced the name that he had given when they wrestled together. But here's the important point here in this, in this narrative. Jacob has finally arrived in the place that God called him to go. He's being obedient to God. And now God says, okay, you're not Jacob. You're not acting like Jacob. You're not living like Jacob. You're now living like Israel. This is what I intended for you all along. So your name now is God rules. And again, it's important because Jacob had been acting like Jacob this whole time instead of Israel. And here's the the application for you and I. You you might say, well, gee, Pastor Lee, that's Jacob. What 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 does that mean to me? Well, here's what it means. When you come to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, All things become new. Everything becomes new in your life. The same way in Jacob, now he's totally surrendered to God. Everything's changing. He has a new relationship with God. He's worshiping God in a way he's never worshiped before. Just as you come to Christ, just as Jeffrey went in that room and realized that Jesus died for him. He was a sinner and he needed Christ. And life changed. Everything became new. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Let me show you this verse here behind me on the screen. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what God has done for you as you've given your heart to him. He's taken you from this place of deadness and given you new life. Just as Jacob now gets a new name, he's, he's got a brand new life ahead of him. God's going to lead him and direct him in new ways, just as God leads and directs every one of his children. So God comes to Israel now, not Jacob, and he reminds him of this covenant that he's made first with his grandpa, Abraham, and then with his dad, Isaac, here it is in verse 11. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. Verse 12, the land, the land, that was another part of the covenant, which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your 
descendants after you I give this land. Again, this is the same covenant that God made with Abraham and passed on to Isaac, Jacob's father. People, in other words, descendants, like the sand of the sea or the sand of the seashore or the, the stars in the heavens. Remember the, the promise. Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the stars in the heaven. And then the, the second part of the Abrahamic covenant, which was land. It was Canaan, which was way bigger than Israel now. If you look at Israel, very small little place. But, but the land that was given to, to Israel as a nation goes from Ur of the Chaldees all the way to the Mediterranean, from Egypt all the way up to what's modern-day um, Syria. That whole area was, was given. That was part of the covenant, descendants and land. And then the most important promise, it's not mentioned here, but it's implied. Let me show it to you. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, I will bless, I think I have that one. Genesis 12, verse 3, Landon. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all, notice, the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would that happen? Through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' lineage comes through Jacob, and it's through Abraham and his covenant, and Isaac and Jacob. And we're going to see by the end of this chapter how it, it's not going to go through the Reuben, Simeon, or, or Levi. Why? Because they're murderers, right? It's going to go to, who's the fourthborn? You remember? Judah. Judah. We're going to see that by the end. So through this line is going to come Jesus Christ, who's going to bless the world. He's going to bless the nations. All the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that's now being passed on to this man, Israel. So God appears to Israel, and in, in, again, in bodily form, verse 13, he went up from him in the place and he talked with him. Again, I, I just believe this Christophany. Verse 14, Jacob sat a, up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel, or the house of God. Now, the drink offering, here's a, just an interesting little side note. You'll see this throughout the Old Testament, the, the drink offering, Exodus 29, Numbers 15. Let me show you a reference right now, Leviticus 23. And its drink offering shall be wine, one-fourth of a hen. In other words, there was wine that was a Mixed with water, it was poured out as an offering. It was poured out on the sacrifice before the Lord. There were different kinds of offering. There are grain offerings, there's drink offerings, there's animal sacrificial offerings, different sizes, birds and, and goats and bulls, different things, different sacrifices for different things. This is a, a drink offering. Remember Paul said his life was like being poured out? My life is going to be poured out like a drink offering. It's kind of a beautiful picture of Jacob. He's, he's being obedient. Now he's pouring it all out. He's surrendering completely. That's the story that we're getting on his life. Finally, at the end of the, this section, we've looked at 10 or so chapters of Jacob, and we're finally seeing him surrendered and obedient and worshiping and pouring himself out. His heart, Israel's heart, it's been changed. 
He's now worshiping God. And he's showing God how grateful he is. He, he pours out this offering. Oh, I love you, Lord. And he, he just pours out that offering like Paul poured out his, his life. And then my next point here, the birth of Benjamin, verse 16. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, so the whole family. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath or Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth. And she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, you can make it. I can just hear her saying, don't fear, you're, you're going to have a son. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Ani, which means son of my sorrow. And then she dies. She bears a son, and then she dies. But Jacob doesn't want to name him son of sorrow. He names him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Who sits at the right hand of the father right now? Who sits at the right side of a king? This is just a, a, he's giving reference to, this is a son of my strength. This is the 12th son of Israel. Remember, he came with 12 kids, but one of them was a girl, Dinah. Uh, when he came back to Canaan. But now he's, his family is complete. Now he has 12 sons. And it's Benjamin, the, the son of strength, the son of honor here that is born. And then his beloved uh, Rachel dies. So in verse 19, we have the, the death and the burial of, of Rachel. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Bethlehem or Ephrath. Um, again, what I find so fascinating as I study this and, and as we've gone many, many months through this uh, wonderful book of beginnings is that when Benjamin is, is born, and we've seen other children born, especially in this family. And remember back in chapter 30, there was like this rivalry between Leah and, and Rachel they're each trying to have kids, and, and they're in competition, and, and they want, and so they, they give their handmaiden to Jacob. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Remember that whole story? But in this birth, there's no competition. It's just peaceful. Although Rachel now, she dies, and Benjamin uh, is born. Again, Jacob, he leaves Laban. Again, this is back in chapter 31. And when he left Remember, Laban was so mad that he didn't tell him. And so Laban, six days, he rides and rides and rides, finally catches up to Jacob. And he is going to, I think he's going to murder him. I think he's really mad at, at Jacob. He's, and he's screaming and yelling. And who stole my what, remember? Who stole my idols? Because they had household idols and they set up these household idols. Rachel stole her, her dad's idols. He took them. And remember, she pretended she was on her period, sitting on the horse. They were under the under her saddle. She was sitting on the saddle. Sorry, you won't make a woman that's on her period get off the horse, Dad, will you? Remember that? And she took those, those idols. She stole those idols. And that was that story that was, you know, that was in his past. That was, that was back then. But now, Rachel, it's interesting to me. Rachel dies. Remember what Jacob said when Laban said, did you take my idols? He said, I didn't take anybody's idols. It's back in chapter 31, verse 32. He says, this is what Jacob tells Laban. With whomever you find your gods, 
do not let him live. In other words, I didn't take him, and if anybody in my family took the idols, you can kill him. And now we see Rachel. She dies. It's kind of a sad truth in her life. She was a deceiver. She grew up under her uncle who deceived uh, Jacob, you know, making him work seven years for one daughter, stewing the switcheroo on their wedding night and seven more years. And so this whole family, but Rachel, sad, she dies. Verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Jacob honors her. He, he loved her until she died. Now Israel here, he's, he's obedient, he's surrendered, he's walking with the Lord again, his, everything's going really good, but it's his oldest son, Reuben, who commits th- this great offense now. Now, it's, it was Simeon and Levi back in chapter 34, but now look in verse 21, then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent before the tower of Eder, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben, this is his oldest son, he went and lay with Billah his father's concubine, and then Israel, not Jacob, notice this, Israel heard about it. Can you imagine this father? He's lived his whole life as a schemer. He's been a horrible example, and he heard about it. I I believe when he heard about it, he started weeping. Oh, what I've done to my kids. My bad example in my whole life. Now I'm following God, but for so long I didn't follow God, And, and look what my son does. He does what I did, and, and, and it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. But again, Jacob's lies, his deceitful behavior, all of it came from, uh, and now it's being transferred, pardon me, to his, his sons. They, they learned it. Reuben learned how to be a deceitful liar from his father. All the bad habits of, of his father, his dad, now come upon his son. Remember David in the Bible and his son Absalom who rebelled against him? Eli the priest and his son Hopni and Phinehas, remember those guys? I mean, there's a lot of examples in the Bible where where parents, the fathers, were horrible examples and their kids created all kinds of problems for them later on. Again, I'm not trying to pick on dads. You could say parents here, but especially dads. You need to live your life before the Lord. You need to do the right thing uh, before your children. Joshua 24, here's a great verse. We, I used this one last year for Father's Day, but here it is. Joshua 24, if you recall. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what it takes, dads, parents. You have to start there. I'm going to make a decision that me and my wife and our children and together as husband and wife, we're going to lead our children to the Lord. You can do that and you can be successful at that as well. But you need to determine that. In Reuben's case, he had a horrible example in his father. And then along with his brothers, Simeon and Levi, you know, they killed the men of Shechem. They've all become disqualified now from Abraham's blessing. And it's going to go to the fourth son, as I've mentioned. It's going to go to Judah to bring forth the Messiah. Jesus comes. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 22 through 26, we get my next point here, Jacob's 12 sons. Look at verse 22 now, or the end of verse 22 there. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. 
with, with Benjamin, 12. The sons of Leah, here we get kind of a breakdown. Leah had six, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, and Zebulun. And then the sons of Rachel, she had two, Joseph and Benjamin. And the sons of Billa, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And then verse 26, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservants, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padaram. Now, when you think of these 12 boys, this is not the team that I would pick to do the all-star stuff. I mean, if you know what I'm talking about. But God is, is working with this messed up family. And God is going to use them, not because they're great guys, but because he's a great God. This is something that we have to always remember. And again, uh, there are positive and negative examples throughout the Bible. This is one of those, the negative examples. Walking with the Lord because God chose you and being obedient to that. You can do that. You can choose to do that and follow the Lord. But it's, we have a great God. And God sovereignly chose Jacob. I mean, definitely a loser most of his life. But God chose him. And God sovereignly worked through him. And these boys, God sovereignly chose them. And God is going to use them. It's a, it's a wonderful thing when you think about the grace of God. Now, the chapter closes here with my next point here, the death of Isaac, verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had lived. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to all his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried them. So Isaac lives the longest of these patriarch, 180 years, and, and Esau and Jacob, these two that were, had contention their whole life, divided as young boys, mother, you know, Rebecca deceiving through her son, Jacob, making him a little costume, you know, and telling him to lie to his father, his blind dad, made um, Esau so mad he wanted to kill his brother, chased him out of the country. 20 years later, he comes back. You know, remember how, how Jacob came back with a tail between his legs? He didn't know if his brother was going to kill him or not. This contention. And finally, they're here together. Here they are at the end of their life, at the end of their father's life, and they bury their dad together. Now, I want to do this really quick. I think I can do this in like five minutes, but look at chapter 36. This will happen really fast. This is filled with names, names of Esau's children, God is going to honor the firstborn of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob's the patriarch. And his firstborn is Jacob. So we're going to get his, all the names. These are the Edomites. Jacob's son, his firstborn, Esau's children are all named here. And uh, you can't really do an exposition of this, by the way. If you can, you're, you're, you're the best preacher I've ever met. I, just, I spent more time just trying to pronounce the names. I, I can't even do that. So I'm not even going to read this whole thing. But, but we get this long genealogy. People are into genealogy these days. And, you know, you can go to ancestry.com, ancestry but you're not going to find this stuff on there. But, but here's, here's the thing about this. This just shows you that God is honoring the firstborn of Jacob. This is important. And so this record is here, chapter 36, these details um, because he's the firstborn. 
And really quick, um, verses 1 through 5 is Esau's wives, Ada, Aholibawa, and Bosmath. You can, you can do your own pronunciation if you want. And then verses 6 through 8, this, this explains why the separation. And real quick, verse 6, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and his person, his house, a cattle, animal. In other words, there's a big group of people. And there's Esau and there's Jacob. Jacob's got riches too. They can't live in the same land. They have to divide. That's the reason for the division. And then verses 9 through 14, we have Esau's sons and grandsons. The most interesting one is in verse 12, Amalek. You remember Amalek. The Amalek's, the, that family becomes Israel's worst enemy. And they're finally defeated by um, Saul. Saul wipes them out. And then Hezekiah later will, will finish them off. But they become a thorn in the side of Israel. The Edomites have always been a, a thorn to the side of, of Israel. Why? Why? Why would God do that? Because God's sovereign. And God used those people, the Edomites, in the children of Israel's life to bring um, all kinds of judgment, all kinds of problems, all kinds of trials. God used them sovereignly to do what he was going to do in the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about that. But verses 15 through 19, we have the chiefs. If you're reading a King James version, you'll notice it says dukes. King James from the British, you know, it's kind of English when you, when you read it, but chiefs is a really a better translation, meaning there were like a thousand, they were over a thousand people, each one of these chiefs. And then verses 20 through 30, the intermarriage of the, the people that were living there before Esau got there, the Horite people, that's where Esau lived. And then verses 31 through 43, you have all the kings of Edom listed, all their names. And again, you can go through there and and decipher all their names. And that brings me to this one verse. Let me show it to you here on the, on the screen behind me. Remember this verse? It's in several places in the Bible. It's Romans 9.13. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Remember that verse? Hated there. Did God really hate Esau? Well, the, the word better translated rejected. God chose, by his sovereignty, he chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau. This is God working sovereignty, sovereignly here. Esau's family, obviously, when you read that genealogy, chapter 36, they were obviously blessed. They had a big family. They had turmoil like other nations, but huge family. God blessed him. God promised to bless Esau. Remember, uh, Isaac said, won't you bless my son? And God said, I'll bless your son. He'll have lots of offspring. And that's why we have that record. But, but God sovereignly chooses. And I think this is really, I'm not afraid to talk about the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly, he chose Jacob, the second born over Esau, the firstborn. Some people will say, well, he chose him because he looked down in the future and he saw what he would do. See, I don't believe that. I believe that God is sovereign and God had a plan and God sovereignly chose Jacob. Not because Jacob would outperform Esau, but because God chooses. I love what one author says, if God blesses so abundantly, like Esau in his, in his disobedience, 
those who were, were not chosen by him, what do you think the magnitude of his blessing you and I who he's chosen? You and I who are sons and daughters of God. Can you imagine? I mean, God wants to bless his people. And again, if people that are not spiritual, people that are not following Jesus Christ, if they can experience the goodness of God, how much greater will God bless his own? You need to know that. You need to trust in the Lord. He, he wants to bless you. The bottom line, though, is Jacob was just as lost as Esau was. In fact, we got nine chapters of how lost he was. And yet God was working sovereignly in his life. Someone said this about, about the sovereignty of God. We are lost when we fail to come. We are saved only by the grace of God. We're lost when we fail to come. In other words, you have an opportunity to come to Christ. You need to, when you hear about sin and when you understand that you're a sinner, kind of like Jeffrey's experience in the back room. I had that experience when I was 13 years old. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed a savior. And all you have to do is come to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. And look what God can do. If God can take Jacob and use him and his family with all their, their trials and troubles and disobedience and make them into a nation, what can he do with you? Oh, I think there's great hope for all of us. To which family do you belong, Esau or Jacob? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. And I thank you that you call, you call us, Lord, to yourself. And I believe you're calling even now. As we read through this, this narrative, Lord, this historical uh, narrative of, of this family, we see how your grace works so marvelously, how wonderfully. And Father, I, I pray tonight that there would be, that there may be someone here tonight that, that's ready to surrender They've heard the gospel. They, they've gone to church, but they've never surrendered to you, Jesus. If that's you tonight, all you need to do is pray. Call out to Jesus Christ and confess your sin and ask him to come into your heart and life. Surrender. Be obedient. And you'll become born again. A work that only God can do. Father, I pray that you would do that wonderful work work that you alone do, calling, saving, and establishing. And how we thank you, Lord. Lord, this story, as raw as it is, the life of Jacob has taught us much. Thank you, Lord. So we move further to the life of Joseph next week. Continue to teach us, help us, Lord, to understand and grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.